one. And welcome everybody to another Smart Money Circle show. I'm Adam Sarhan. With me today is Darren Dotson, who's managing partner at Alum Capital with around 250 million in assets under management. Darren, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's great to be here. So I always like to begin. Can you tell us your story and how you got to where you are today, please? Sure. I uh, grew up in Washington, D.C., um, started uh, looking at and understanding the asset management business after graduating from Duke University and focusing on uh, anti-predatory lending legislation, which uh, I worked with a group of attorneys to pass legislation in, in 18 states to protect low-income homeowners from predatory loans. After that, I I had the uh, opportunity during that time to look at um, research as a power for creating change. And the research there showed that loans were um, underwritten above risk uh, to Black and Latino families in particular, which was, uh, you know, created um, a lot of a lot of people stuck in loans for reasons that um, hurt them as overall borrowers over time, which was bad for banks, but also hurt them in terms of, uh, you know, no one should pay more for a loan because of the race or color of their skin. Um, so using those uh, insights, uh, we ended up going to Stanford Business School and then focusing on underwriting uh, for companies that create positive impact in the world. And that's been my focus uh, for the last uh, 15 years of my career. I did eight years at the Calvert Funds where I focused on investing in transformative, environmentally focused companies, as well as health tech companies before starting my own firm, Lumen Capital, which I'm excited to share more about today. I, you know, perfect. Say, why, by the way, fantastic cause. I love that, that there's something, there's a purpose behind the mission there. And, and that's really, really fantastic. So next is a perfect segue to my next question. Please tell us about your investment strategy. At Illumin Capital, we're a fund of funds. We're a private equity venture and growth fund of funds. We focus on investing in the leading impact funds in the world and working with them to apply rigorous evidence-based strategies to address biases that uh, prevent our managers from seeing the all too often underestimated and overlooked entrepreneurs um, talent within their hiring processes and then also within their board construction and selection processes. Love that. So you're a fund of funds, meaning you're looking at other strategies. I guess my it's a good segue again to my next question. How do you handle risk and what are some mistakes you see people make with respect to risk management? Well, one of the things that we do is that we look at um, investing in an area where there's latent value in the uh, in our investment strategy. So when we look at the asset management business, about $82 trillion under management, 1.4% of it is managed by women and people of color. So one might naturally think that there would be an opportunity um, in investing in, you know, 50% of the universe of possible funds uh, would be women-led. So we might look to women-led firms as a potential for outperformance and women and people of color-led firms. In fact, uh, our own research with Stanford University, where we systematically tested 180 asset allocators and um, looked at their uh, ability to select high-performing Black managers 
versus high-performing white managers controlling for a number of variables. And we found that systematically asset allocators would leave money on the table before investing in uh, high-performing black-led funds, which means that there's a tremendous opportunity um, that it, for those that can see the opportunity, which is the way we spend a lot of time partnering with our downstream funds in order to unlock the verticals that we invest into and their um, ability to see these. We, we liken it to driving a car. Mm -hmm. And if you're driving a car and you've ever had your um, your parking brake on, you, you know, something's going slower and you're not yeah. sure what, quite what for a while and um, taking the blinders off and seeing opportunity within communities that might be different that, than fund managers meet through their networks or, um, uh, you know, through familiarity might, uh, in, in many cases, given our thesis, sort of yield economic opportunities they might not have seen. I love it. I love that. So uh, I guess next question for you, from a, before we, well, let me ask you about the risk again. So you're saying that there's basically a layer of the market of portfolio managers that are allocators or underinvested in or underallocated towards, and that's strictly based on their race. So are there other indicators that you use as far as finding these undervalued money managers and, and allocating to them? Do you look at strategy? Do you look at beta? Do you look at sharp ratio? Anything along those lines? Or is it just a, a race component and gender? Yeah, in the private markets, we also have a sector-based um, strategy, sector strategy. We have four sectors that we invest into, transformative environmental technologies. We look at health-enabled technologies, as well as um, educational technologies um, and financial uh, tech. So when we look at these different areas, each of them have their own respective biases uh, within the strategies and the firms and the companies that the respective funds we invest into uh, commit to. And we're mm -hmm. able to add you know, our unique um, thinking about overcoming biases to each of these different platforms. For example, within EdTech, we see that um, underwriting algorithms, machine learning, et cetera, can apply in the, the biases of a teacher um, yeah. so that education isn't delivered in an equitable way. Um, okay. So if we're interrupting those biases, it increases the education for all students in the classroom and um, helps the firms deliver on uh, important aspects that are important to the education system. Furthermore, we see in a period of high volatility, like we're in uh, high inflation, um, uh, high interest rates, et cetera, that biases increase um, from our social psychologist friends. Uh, in fact, we published a paper with um, some of the leading social psychologists in the world and in, in what we learn is that in these periods of time when people are often making rash decisions, slowing down and addressing biases becomes even more important. So I think that one of the ways that we mitigate risk um, that, uh, you know, whether it's Daniel Kahneman talking about his Nobel Prize winning research uh, is under these pressure oriented conditions where there's lots of emotional energy in the markets, we're able to help our managers slow down and uh, address some of these biases that might occur. Okay, so that makes perfect. So it clicked in my head as you were speaking. Thank you for that. So basically your alpha, your strategy, your edge is being able to find cognitive biases that exists in all our minds and then help 
I guess, narrow it down over there to help this, un, un, I guess, discover or find these undervalued assets that most people would miss because it's a blind spot for them. Is that is that a good way of wording it? That's it. I mean, the assumption, I often say like uh, cognitive biases, as we know from Charlie Munger and Daniel Kahneman, are a very broad number of hundreds of different biases that might show up. But we take a you know, kind of a, a broad view that if 1.4% of $82 trillion in assets are managed by women and people of color, one of the biggest biases that the market might have, especially after our research that shows the higher people perform, the more bias they face if they're black. Yeah. Um, and one of the biggest biases that we might see um, facing women and people of color in the market is the inaccurate assessment of their ability to outperform relative to the analysis that's currently being done. So uh, while many cognitive biases may uh, yield an opportunity in markets, this one is so imbalanced uh, yep. relative to what we would expect by random chance that mm -hmm. we think that there is a massive value um, that underlies people's ability to properly underwrite this group, just like I saw, you know, initially in the banking system where uh, people were being underwritten significantly above risk because they were black or Latino. Yeah, no, I love that. So I wrote a book about uh, psychological investing, it's psychological analysis, and it was number one on Amazon for two months every day. And in it, I have All a right. Yeah. So you're speaking my language, so to speak. I have a whole section on cognitive biases, and I'm very, very big on the the whole idea of the book is to teach you how to make rational, not emotional decisions, especially with your money. So what you're saying here is it's it's spot on. Like I've got my mind going in a gazillion different directions yeah. here. I love that you were able to take that realization you have and then create a whole entire business around it. And a, being a fund to fund manager, you can help, I guess, find those blind spots that other people would miss. So that to me is fascinating and I, and brilliant by the way. So hats off to you. I mean, really, really, really great job. Thank you. So, okay. Uh, well, let me also give the audience something. There's something called a personal blind spot bias. One of these cognitive biases. So if you ask a hundred newlyweds, in case the audience isn't following, here's how to explain it. Ask a hundred newlyweds the night of their wedding, raise your hand if you think you can get divorced. Almost no hands are going to go up. Yet statistically, we know half of them are getting divorced. That's called a personal blind spot bias. And that's a blind spot that people just don't see if you're in it. But if you're out of it, you can clearly see it. And that's what uh, I guess what you're doing over here in, a, in an investment standpoint. Mm -hmm. So- yeah, no, I love that. Okay, timeless lessons. What are some timeless lessons you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with the audience, please? Well, one is the power of um, you know James Baldwin's contributions uh, to our work. And James Baldwin often talks about people and the way that they think, the way that they act, and the difference between and the space between those two. Um, and he says, many people think, think that they would like to do the right thing, um, or underwrite with these types of tools, yep. but when they, um, try to move into action, um, there's, there's a danger of, yeah. like you just mentioned in your example, sort of understanding how their identity might be challenged in the process of acting. So in, in some ways we're moving, um, some of the emotion from the underwriting process sort of helps us to get there. 
I think in studying something uh, like both of us have been working on and something that's unseen bias by definition, right. it's going to be a little bit harder to explain to people something that they don't naturally see. Right. But I think that um, the consistent frameworks for questions that we ask those that we're evaluating, uh, it, although it seems quite simple as an analytical framework, we often see it change drastically when women are presenting in you know large numbers of downside questions that are asked. Um, isn't the risk of this business greater than other businesses? Uh, are you afraid you'll run out of money or not hit your milestones versus men who are often asked, you know, how hard can you hit the ball over the fence or what's how big could this opportunity be? These heuristics creep back into the process of um, investing. And the field that we're in within venture capital, although we found similar findings within public equities as well as fixed income, when we look at private equity venture and growth areas where we invest into there's often massive value creation uh, and upside that could be lost if we're uh, missing some of these biases in a major way. In other words, being second or third in a category isn't always uh, a desirable position. So really choosing the number one entrepreneur um, in a particular field can be very, very valuable. So investing heavily in the underwriting process to partner with our managers is something that we focus on for that reason as well. Oh, I love that. So let's talk about timeless mistakes. What are some timeless mistakes you've learned, you've made, and or how do you avoid them that you want to share? So I think... Um, one of the timeless mistakes that I've seen made uh, quite often is the creation of something new, let's call it uh, the field of impact investing or um, ESG, without one of the critical success factors in producing alpha, which is namely um, the inclusion of women and people of color and particularly because of this finding that shows that bias increases when performance increases, which is sort of um, the hallmark of our, our, our paper. So weeding out top performing managers because of their race, timeless mistake um, yeah. that um, I think a lot of portfolios could benefit from intentionally looking for managers that they might inadvertently through bias weed out. Also, I think it's an important dimension of fiduciary duty. Mm -hmm. um, so it turns out that this timeless mistake is also important for that reason, because if we're trying to be great fiduciaries and we notice that a dimension of outperformance is missing from our pipeline, i.e. women and people of color-led funds, right. that in some cases have uh, are more often than not produced at or above results, then we should be looking, you know, carefully through the portfolio for these opportunities. I love that. That's really, really smart. So you actually, you're able to almost shed, shed light, if you will, on that blind spot and then extract alpha from there. If I understand your process. Yeah, that that's right. And it's sort of consistent with modern portfolio theory. We want to start with a set of the investable universe. Yeah. And what we found is that in evaluating um, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, university endowments, family office uh, asset allocators, that they um, uh, are, are, are not looking for 
inadvertently um, sort of some of these alpha producing managers, which in some cases are women and people of color led funds. I know the National Association of Investment Companies, for example, has done research over the last 40 years showing at or equal performance despite this, uh, you know, kind of lack of um, additional asset allocation to managers uh, of color and women-led funds. So when we combine, you know, the thinking there, we ask, well, well why is it, why aren't asset flows following performance? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we think and and hypothesize on it, there seems to be some, you know, important additional work to be done is that bias is one of those things that can make the mind think differently about allocating capital to outperforming funds. Right. Yeah. You're chasing returns and then, yeah, that that makes perfect sense. Okay. uh, Next question. What's the best piece of advice you'd like to share with the audience or your 20 year old self? (laughs) Let's see. I think that um, one of the exciting pieces of advice that uh, someone gave me, and this is a, a consistent, I found it to be somewhat consistent, but my venture capital teacher at Stanford Business School was Andy Rycliffe, uh, one of the founders of Benchmark. And, you know, he was one of the people that told me, um, you know, big ideas come from uh, two major conditions. And many listeners may be familiar with this. One is that uh, they're non-consensus, and the second is that they're right. So, in other words, if we went around to a number of people and we asked them if this idea was a good idea, uh, a lot of the people would say, uh, "I don't know," or be confused by the idea. And the second condition is that um, you know there's economic value associated with um, delivering on the other side of that idea. Now, I think the idea of bias facing women in color in asset management, when I go around and talk to leaders of financial institutions, um, a lot of them seem puzzled at first, but when they look around their offices and their industry and they see 98% um, of one race and one gender in, in the industry, they then begin to kind of examine how bias might be showing up. And then the second piece is the associated latent economic value with um, fixing that problem or addressing these biases. And, um, you know, that's the essence of Illumin Capital's message and thesis. So trying to find follow Andy's advice there uh, and sort of find an area where there's untapped value that many people may not understand or um, have attention focused on for one reason or another and deliver that value to, uh, of course, our investors and create a movement of others that see this value and can build organizations to address it. That it's almost, it reminds me of the story with Henry Ford. If he was going to ask his cu- customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse and buggy, but instead he invented okay. the So yeah, that makes perfect sense. So, okay, beautiful. Well, uh, Darren, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. What is the best way for people to get in touch with you? Is it a website or how would you like people to reach out? Yeah, I think just go to our website and you can learn more about our work at www.illumincapital.com. Beautiful. Well, Darren, thanks so much and hopefully we'll see you again soon. All right, really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Adam.